podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to a special live version of the Analyst Inside Cricket podcast when we, as the modestly titled World's Best Cricket Club, debate a hot topic with a few invited guests. So tonight's subject is the issue of racism in English cricket, which of course came to a very prominent head with Azim Rafiq's very harrowing testimony of his experiences at Yorkshire a couple of months ago. Now, he was talking predominantly about professional cricket, but we're going to be looking more at the club game to explore if racism and prejudice are endemic at grassroots level. So, among the guests tonight, we have Nadim Chowdhury, chairman of Osterley CC, a club in West London. Tom Brown, who has studied the pathways for young South Asians to get into the county game in the Birmingham area and established the South Asian Cricket Academy. Robbie Book, who is chairman of the Club Cricket Conference, which looks after over 1,600 clubs up and down the country and deals with various issues that tend to arise through the season. We also have Umar Mughal, who is a very keen member of our world's best cricket club and also a volunteer coach in Bedfordshire. So welcome to all of you and to our regular members as well. Feel free to dip in whenever you feel like it. The idea of this is to have an open discussion on the topic and air our views and experiences on the subject of racism in cricket. The aim is to, in my case, just learn more and be better informed about the whole issue. And I hope recording this podcast will achieve that. So let's begin. And we'll start with you, Nadim Chowdhury, chairman of Osterley Cricket Club in West London. I've been down to your club, actually, and seen the impressive setup you've got there with a really nice clubhouse and also a sort of indoor nets area as well. And I know you run a number of junior teams, loads of Colts during the week, and also, of course, a number of senior teams as well. So will you just start by telling us what the situation is at your club, what sorts of experiences you have regarding the local area, the local borough, uh, opposition teams with regard to perceived or actual racism? Um, there are uh, several members who are very vocal and um, they, they feel that um, it's their opinion that uh, large established clubs uh, have their network of um, umpires. Let's start off with just umpiring. Um, it was a problem at in international level. They brought in neutral umpires. So it's been found that um, umpires um, are turning up to matches that are from the same club in the same league um, and are ruining the game with certain decisions and technology is not being allowed um, to be used to uh, identify some of the people. So everyone's now saying, well, hang on, it's allowed at an international level. If the clubs, if you're playing in the Premiership or in Division One, uh, everyone's recording these um, games nowadays. So why is that not admissible uh, evidence to say you're playing against a club, the umpire is from that club, and he's supposed to be a neutral panel umpire? Um, and when you raise that, it kind of like just gets put aside. So the members then start saying, well, we're not going to carry on playing for Osterley because it's obvious um you guys have a uh, an issue because you're the only asian club um ma asian managed club at that level um although we play against lots of clubs that are multicultural um but these these players are now moving from middlesex to other counties because they just want to play and the members are actually saying well let's just move to an asian league away from um you know, the league that we have fought very strongly and are very proud to be part of. And, and you know, the league committee members at the top are very supportive of Osterley, but it's the behaviour of some beneath at, at a level that the leagues can't control. And that's the problem. So how does that relate to, um, you know, alleged racism or 
prejudice, particularly? How do those umpiring decisions? Are you saying that those umpires could be could be racist in their decision making, or that ra- there's a racist undertone to it, perhaps? Um, there's certainly uh, there's opinions of of certain players that that is what is happening, and they're no longer playing. Um, at this level or this league, and they just say we'd rather play on a uh, in a different league or on a uh, on a Sunday where it's not fixed because it's a, a, a group of players. But uh, to give you an example, um, when we have had some very talented players coming in from academies, um, you know, under nineteen players, and they, they kind of like get sledging to say, um, as they're the only individual white. Um, player in the team it, it, they get told are you sure you're playing the right team you must be lost I'll go on get out of here <laughs> and and just abusing and then they're constantly saying making comments um, which you know you wouldn't really expect in uh, in a game and how do they cope with that or what, what do they do about it well um, out, of, you, out of the three lads that have complained uh, to the club secretary they said, well, we went to the umpire. Umpire said, just get on with it. Um, and they never, they just said, well, it's pointless. I don't come here to be abused on a, um, and, they, and they kind of like just move away from, uh, from the club. If it was an older um, person like our third 11 captain who won seven um, promotions on the trot, he just turns around and tells people, you know what, they behave better than you do. So I'm staying here with my friends who have come here to play cricket. Well, that's someone who's mature and strong. But, you know, if you're trying to nurture and bring in young talent um, and not, you know, <laughs> um, it, it becomes very difficult. So, OK, um, Robbie, as chairman of the Club Cricket Conference, obviously you field quite a lot of complaints and issues and, and so on. Do you, do you recognise this kind of thing? Is that the kind of thing that you have to deal with from time to time? Yes, I do. Um, and we do as a as, as the conference. We're part of a wider organisation called the National Cricket Conference and we, 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 we look after things to do with disciplinary action for things that of the nature that, that Nadine's mentioned. Uh, I'd like to widen this slightly, if I may, um, by talking about the word prejudice. You've used both prejudice and racism in the same breath, Simon. I think the whole point about this is we're actually talking about prejudice and the prejudice is not necessarily racist of its nature. It can be and will be where the people involved are are, are such. If I can draw an analogy, um, in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, I could have put forward a very, very good argument that golf was endemically anti-Semitic. Every golf club that I knew had an anti-Semitic policy. In the 30 years since, it's gone. That doesn't exist anymore. And it's because it's been attacked from within and the people who were, the people, not the club, not the sport, the people were eradicated from it. If we're gonna do anything to do in cricket to do with racism, or what I prefer to call it, prejudice in whichever part it is, whether it's against race or uh, religion or education or not drinking or whatever, prejudice in whichever form it it comes, we have to get rid of it at club level. At club level, we have the opportunity to do so. And that's because luckily we're in small in numbers in each club. If we've got 250 people in a club, we can actually control the environment. We can't control the environment up at the top at the elite level. We can't control the environment through the ECB. We have to do it at ourselves as clubs and then move it on from there. So let's come to you, Umar, because you've had kind of, you know, good contrasting experiences. You played in the Bradford League, you know, in your teens and early 20s. And now you're a dad and you're a coach in Bedfordshire. So give us your kind of, you know, wide experiences of this yeah so i'll start with my bradford league um sort of experiences i think essentially 
what I found was the majority of people you played with were nice people, were kind of cricket living people, but there were always a couple of almost alpha males in the team who would drag others along. And um, sort of these alpha males, you know, they'd, they'd crack jokes and the rest of them would sort of either laugh or or just kind of sing along really and sort of make jokes. And then the odd person might offer, offer sympathy uh, in, in private. But I always found there was a couple of dominant characters who... I mean, did they know they were being racist? Probably, but for them it was just banter. I think that that term banter that was used, that was quite a good phrase to term it. They probably didn't realise they were hurting someone's feeling, hurt someone's feelings, but in actual fact they were certainly, they didn't hinder my progression, but they killed my enjoyment, uh, I would say. Um, I mean, I can give you two, two very kind of vivid examples growing up. There was a Sikh lad who uh, wore a turban, and every time he came to the ground, he was almost serenaded to the ground with the lad singing, oh, he's got the whole world on his head because he had a big turban on. And it was, it, it was, it was hilarious, but he, he killed him. And he, he, he never had, had the, the courage to say anything. Um, my, one experience that always got me was, so when we're in the Nets practicing, you've got to think we're probably, probably two or three Asian lads out of 15, 20 uh, white lads. And whenever you got the ball got smashed out of the nets, it was like, oh, yeah, get him a taxi. When it was my turn, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, just, mate, ring your uncle. It's probably, it's probably, it's probably down there anyway, so you don't need, you don't, don't need to call a taxi. And it's, it's, it's a little funny joke, but it really hurts. And um, so they're, they're two vivid examples uh, that really, really, really st- uh, struck with me. I remember once I questioned it, and this is what really kind of killed my spirit in a way. Um, I questioned it with the, with the, the, the head coach. He said, look, you've got to calm down. You've got too many chips on your shoulder. If you don't like it, piss off and play your Sunday uh, packy league. These are his, his exact words. Because the Saturday league was the Bradford League, the highest standard, nice clubs in Yorkshire. The Sunday league was the informal Asian league. So I wanted to play the best standard I could. And if that meant getting a bit of abuse, um, yeah, we had, to, we had to take it. And furthermore to that, my elders, my, you know, the Asian elders at the club, they just say, well, in the 70s, we had it far worse. So if you, if you, if you do, just shut up and keep playing. If you don't like it, then leave. So I felt I had nowhere to go. And therefore, we just, uh, sort, we just sort of took the pain, if you like, just for the love of cricket. And in, and in the end, you sort of, you almost gave up, didn't you? Yeah, so there was a lad I played cricket with from the age of 10. Um, and one day I had a bit of a meltdown with him about racism. I, mean, I was going to uni. I was never going to become a pro. I was never good enough, to be fair, but... And I just said, look, whatever happened was wrong. And he was like, well, you're okay. It's the rest of them. And, and also kind of, you know, he said, oh, if, if you'd said something, then we would have stopped. But we did say things along, along, the, along the way and no one stopped. And I, I just wish, I'll, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> My son plays Bedfordshire under 14s. Um, there was a lad who we were doing a fitness test. And one lad, he was doing push-ups and he was hopeless. And a few of them started making fun of him. And my son sort of said, that's wrong. You can't make fun of him. He's our teammate. That's not right. And he stood up for him. And I thought, you know what? If I had one person like that back in the day to stand up for me, it might have been a better experience. But it's nice that he had that kind of mental capacity to say, you know what? That's not right. I'm going to speak about it. And that's what I think that's what we lacked uh, back in the day. And uh, I'll, I'll come back to you on you know your other experiences of reason at times, but uh, it, it's a good way to bring in Tom Brown, actually. You actually have done a lot of research into this area. And although I know you're uh, sort of largely focused on pathways into the professional game, the, the sort of treatment of young Asian players, uh, sort of rather stereotyping them uh, and maybe making it harder for them to get through pathways is something you've tried to understand and change, isn't it? So my, uh, like I said, my background, I've done a PhD specifically looking into effectively why so few Asian cricketers transfer out of talent pathways into the professional game. Um, and I'll be really honest, even where I started with this research, um, so it's been going on for four years now, and I would say for the first 12 to 18 months, even I had the sort of lens of looking at this as, well, what are Asian cricketers doing wrong to not make it through the pathway? And it probably took me, like I say, 12 to 18 months to sort of realise, well, yes, we've looked at the, these things and there are some things that could be done better. But as is the case with everybody, 
um, why is it really? And we flipped the sort of lens onto ourselves to evaluate um, what we were doing as practitioners. And that's when sort of we started realizing that as a pathway, we're very uh, sort of narrow in terms of what, what we look for, especially when it comes to things around sort of character and uh, personalities and people, coachability, people we want to work to being incredibly westernized and a lot of the stereotypes of Asian cricketers so the three we were sort of challenged with at the start were around uh, attitudes towards fitness and diet uh, Asian cricketers not being good fielders and uh, Asian cricketers all wanting to quote unquote go off and become doctors and lawyers and prioritize education and effectively we went through those stereotypes and we identified things like from a CAG perspective so your county age group player it was identified that Asian cricketers were less fit than white cricketers. But when you looked at the academy lads, so the lads who were most likely to be signed, the Asian cricketers were actually fitter than the white cricketers. So again, that was kind of a, an idea of, well, maybe we're looking at the whole and judging the few um, with that. And also when we looked at you know the education side, again, looking at CAG, it might be a case that disproportionately Asian lads prioritise education. But when we looked at the academy, more significantly more white lads on the academy ended up going to university compared to to Asian lads so again it was sort of one of these stereotypes where it actually didn't stand up to to the analysis. What's been the product of your research? I mean one thing is you've created this South Asian Cricket Academy um, so how is that going and what's the aim there? Um, well, it's going really well. We've, we started in uh, January and we've I've literally well, I'm wearing the kit now I've just come from a session with the girls um, and we've got basically a three-pronged approach to try and look at the issue. Um, the first thing to highlight that it is a really short to medium-term intervention and that effectively we recognise there are a lot of changes the game's going to have to make. Um, and like Robbie alluded to earlier, it's probably got to start or it might have to start from the ground up and it might take time for the elite game to catch catch up. But there are lots of players out there that don't have time to wait for, for that catch-up. Um and the amount of professional cricketers from an Asian background has declined by 40% in the last 10 years. And guys that are currently on the uh, professional staffs, I think 20% of the demographic are already over the age of 32. So not wanting to write anybody off, but they might, you know, look to, we could be losing another 20% in the next three years as it is. Um, so what we've done is we've created a, a men's program, which targets players that are older than 18 that have been released from the system and basically offer them almost like the YC Young Cricketers program did an opportunity to play second 11 counties. Um, and from that program, we've got a three pronged approach to help players, coaches and research. So we've got two research programs funded alongside the, the intervention program. We've got a mixture of white and Asian coaches to try and learn off each other about how to coach different cultures. And then we've got an Asian team of lads that are designed to basically almost be used as an experiment or like a, it doesn't matter what happens, let's try things. And then we can feed all of that information back into the current system. Um, like I said, it's designed to be a three to six year intervention. We don't want to be around forever and let the game cause more divide. Um, it's just to try and fast track that learning. And then the final thing is, obviously, we've got a girls program, which is targeting at under 15, because that's where it appears the drop off is for there. So we've got a load of Asian female coaches um, as well. And we've, we've created a really small hub, which has joined up with Warwickshire to try and um, impact their talent pathway as well. And, and just just one more question to you uh, before we sort of move on a bit. Um, there's often been the case, I mean, you know, the, the, the commonly uh, touted fact is that 35 to 40% of uh, amateur cricketers in the UK are of South Asian extraction or something like that, over 30% anyway, yeah. but only 4% of those players end up in professional teams. Yeah. And one of the reasons sort of mooted for that is that, well, lack of, you know, obviously lack of role models would be one, but another would be lack of Asian coaches. Is it the case that they, some of these players feel more comfortable with an Asian coach? I think it's understanding, like having that cultural awareness as a coach. I've got to be a little bit careful. Like, and I, I'm, the irony of what I look like and who I am isn't lost on me being a white, blonde haired, blue eyed lad um, yeah. talking about equality and stuff. But the what I think we have to look at is um, those coaches bringing a sort of cultural understanding. So 
the examples we give um, are typically you see in collectivist or Asian cultures that Asian lads to show respect won't make eye contact, that they won't challenge authority. They won't question what they're being taught. They're, they're way more sort of from the outside, it looks introverted. And I think at the moment that gets sort of misinterpreted for having a poor attitude or not being coachable. And what we're actually saying is these lads are doing their utmost to show respect to coaches. And actually there could be a different way of engaging with them. So whilst we can try and spread that knowledge as fast as we can through mediums like this, having a naturally diverse coaching staff will allow those conversations to happen naturally, as long as those coaches feel empowered to be there and their voices are heard and they're not kind of like tick boxing. We've got an Asian coach, we've got a black coach, we've got a female coach, et cetera. Hmm. Umar, you were nodding there as a, an Asian coach yourself, I mean, and former player, obviously, you sort of see some some logic there then? Yeah, I mean, the one point you made that is absolutely spot on is the cultural aspect. So growing up, I went to pretty much white Catholic schools. We were always told, look me in the eye and answer back when you were being told off. Whereas the Asian culture is, you keep quiet and look down, which could be perceived, like you said, as, as disobedience. Um, and it's that, that kind of education level that does a, a non-Asian coach know that, that this kid is not being rude. That's just how he's been taught up. So he's showing respect, but he's been perceived as perhaps being, being rude. But in that, that point, spot on. And in, equally, um, so last year, I was, I was uh, the team manager, assistant coach, and I had an English coach, and it was, it was Ramadan. And obviously, we have 12 weeks. We have a squad of 18. And every session, we're, we're, we're marking these kids as, as what they're doing. I said, look, it's Ramadan. Maybe you've got to judge these Asian kids differently. You know, it's 7, 7 p.m. They've been fasting all day. <clears throat> so if they drop a catch or misfield, is it because they're not good enough or is it because he's probably tired from the end of the day? And I think that understanding with him, he actually said, yeah, perhaps if you weren't there and it, and it was two white coaches, they might have thought, oh, well, these three are useless, can't field. But because they were fasting, they were just a bit, bit um, under par. So that cultural mix of having different blends of coaches is, is really important. Uh, just, just to jump in really quickly, the Ramadan point's massive as well because when you come to the end of the year, when you kind of look back at people's performances, is it contextualised that, you know, some of those lads weren't literally fasting you know, during a month of the season and their performances are likely to dip. Does that get forgotten about or is it even acknowledged at the time? But what we found is if you're really trying to build a performance environment around individuals instead of sort of shoehorning individuals into the performance environment, a lot of the research shows how during Ramadan uh, sessions will be better off in the morning because energy levels will be a lot higher. Uh, and actually, if you can get a session before school, a lot of coaches might not thank me for that, but if you can get a session before school, that will be way more beneficial than, like you say, at 7 p.m. at night when they're, they're on their knees. And then you not only they, they got to train, you're actually kind of subconsciously judging their performances at those things as well. So these are the types of differences you can make to become a really culturally aware pathway. I think there's, a, there's another uh, point worth mentioning. Um, the Asian parents sometimes from... Um, yeah, not having uh, the skills and, and, and the language, um, the language becomes a barrier. Uh, so the parent is unable to speak to um, the coaches uh, and it's deemed as if, you know, they're just dropping the kids off and, um, and they're not getting the support. Whereas um, another uh, parent would go and have a beer with um, the coach and, and chat about how to help um, the child uh, or the cult through you know whatever difficulties and how to improve and I think there is that aspect as well I don't know if you if you've seen that Tom but um, <clears throat> yeah there are things so, like yeah, yeah. sorry even things like trial letters being written in you know English and you know that's that's obviously one end of the extreme but the the, the other thing was around sort of diet and nutrition kind of building on your point there with it being tailored like who actually cooks the meals in the Asian household and are they the ones going to these dietitian meetings if that makes sense so a lot of the time you'll see the dads wanting to be at the forefront and taking the kids to these sort of sessions around diet but actually the people making the food back home they're the ones that need communicating with and having a white coach or nutritionist talk about you know chicken and broccoli is that going to engage with uh, an Asian household where the food's very different and you know if you can get a female asian chef talking to the mums about cooking 
food differently. I'm obviously I'm being very sort of general when I talk about mums cooking food. One of the things that we're here to talk about is how club cricket can actually help the situation rather than sit back and uh, and, and watch it happening. Um, if you take something like the club cricket conference, we have a representative 11 and we developed a pathway system for clubs to send representatives to us for representative games. 80% of the people being put forward to play for the club cricket conference representative 11 against home county second 11s big big clubs are from an asian origin we we certainly have been able to facilitate kent and essex to actually take on people and give them contracts who have played against them in matches which we have arranged and that is in a tiny corner of a tiny part of the uk and surely the main thing that we want to be able to do is to be able to enhance that pathway and to be able to give more people the opportunity of playing in matches which will showcase them in front of the various different coaches from wherever. Clubs have to acknowledge and push forward their good cricketers to us to allow us to pick them. Well, can I can I say that that's I think that's fantastic to hear that that's what's going on and and that's what we're trying to do with Saka. So we've got um, 12, uh, 12 games against nine counties, second elevens this year. Trying to dim, and whether you're from a, a white, black, or, or Asian background, I think one of the biggest issues in the game right now is that our pathways stop at eighteen. Um, and I know it's for a reason to do with sort of PCA minimums and trying to make sure these players are remunerated for their time, but also it's, it's kind of like the old saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions that actually it cuts off guys who are late developers it cuts off those who um, excel at different times and which is late developers but it, it cuts off a whole talent pool and we're basically what well, a lot of the research around talent ideas saying we don't know very little we're very poor at predicting future performances we're very good at assessing what we've got in front of us but it's very hard to predict future performances and we don't finish developing cognitively or physically to we're in our early 20s if i may say you're absolutely right Um, our lot we have an under 25 team we have a full representative team and we find we pick up more late developers than we will ever get youngsters the youngsters are in your bailiwick they're not in our bailiwick our bailiwick is to look after the club cricketers who want to move on and we just did a survey um in our latest newsletter uh, one uh, asking how many clubs actually have kids who want who are who aspire to play first class cricket and 41% of them came back to say that up to 5% of their of their players had other, had those aspirations and that's a lot of kids who have those aspirations we must find a way within the club cricket community of ensuring they have the opportunities either the early stage or even the later stages that we're just talking about. Tom, uh, uh, just a, a question that from a, an experience I've had. I, I had a conversation with a, a coach from a club that I do some work with. Uh, he's of Pakistani origin. Uh, his son goes to a state school, but he's quite a talented cricketer. And the dad said to me, when he coaches uh, at, the, at the club and sort of has a hand in picking the team for the under-13s, his son gets in. But when he's not there, for whatever reason, he's called away on business or you know, he can't turn up to the coaching session, he said he tends to find his son doesn't get picked, right? And he you know, doesn't feel that's entirely fair. But I then confronted the head coach, uh, who's white, of that team, or a, a coach who's of overseas that team, and I said, well, you know, what's this story here? Why doesn't this kid get picked? And he said, well, he's not that good. Um, so my question to you really is, um, how do you deal with the differences of evaluating players from a possibly Asian perspective and from a white perspective and quite often from the parents rather than the kids? 
Well, I mean, you've actually hit the nail on the head with the problem with the entire system, if I'm honest, is that it's 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 solely subjective and relies entirely on the, the opinions of coaches at the moment. Um, uh, and what we're trying to get across at the moment is, and it's probably where, from an academic point of view, our research has let, let the side down, is that we haven't uh, sort of developed objective measures for testing talent yet. Um, so all you can rely on at the moment is the opinions of coaches However, that evaluation is caught up to kind of say, well, we're not very good at that for, for that exact reason that one person will say one thing, another person will say another. And then all these biases come on, whether that's racial or whether that's confirmation bias or uh, other, you know, anything like the biggest voice in the room. So we, we've got a thing with um, uh, at Warwickshire. And if, say, um, Mark Robinson, the head coach, walked in and talked to me as an academy player and said, this lad's a good player chances are my opinion of that player will start to change that oh, he's a good player because because Robbo thinks he's a good player. And likewise, it could happen the other way that if he's a poor player, he becomes a poor player in my head. And 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 we make these decisions really quickly um, and it's quite snap. And there was, I won't name the players or the coaches involved, but I remember watching one game and he, he happened to be Asian. It, didn't, it wasn't a general thing. He just happened to be Asian. But after three balls of this lad batting, the guy went, he's not ready. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a classic example of this going wrong because now the other coaches in their heads now have the thought, well, you don't think he's ready. Even if I do think he's ready, maybe I'm questioning my own opinion of what's going on and, 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 it, and it causes all these issues. And, and until you have something objective to measure with, which unfortunately, even the fitness tests we use are like, so the bleak test and the yo-yo test are football tests. They were designed for, you know, you run 20 meters back and forth, which is, you know, from the byline to the halfway line. At no point in cricket are you continuously running. So you're actually testing different energy systems. Um, so it's it's trying to develop this stuff as fast as we can, which is, again, why I said about Saka being a three to six year intervention, that hopefully we can get this done. And, and But there's a safety net below it to try and ensure we're doing what we can for those who, who, who will miss out in terms of that development being done in time. Coaching and, and selection is so subjective. Isn't it? I, I remember um, coaching in Sri Lanka when I was about 19, and this little tiny kid came into the nets in some club in Colombo, and he was about 12, and he looked about sort of eight, he was tiny, and he kept whipping the ball from about off stump through mid-wicket, and he missed the odd one, but hit a few, and I said, you know, you've got to play straight, mate, you know, and he was like, okay, okay, and then he, uh, he did that sort of wobbling of his head as if to say, yes, sir, yes, sir, and then he played a couple straight and then kept whipping them through mid-wicket. And I gave up trying to coach him in the end. Thank God. That was Aravinda de Silva. He made 14 test hundreds and obviously broke the record for Sri Lankan uh, test runs at one, at one stage. So, you know, I was kind of brought up with this sort of MCC coaching manual and it would have, um, it would have inhibited him massively if I'd tried to, to stick to that. What would you have done with Malinga? Actually, I, I, Malinga, I would have absolutely let him bowl like, like he does. I mean, I, I think bowlers need to find more uh, innovative ways of, of restricting runs. I think Malinga's absolutely brilliant. I mean, I've always encouraged. In fact, I used to try and drop my own arm sometimes, not that to that level, but you know, to a, to a certain level to uh, enable the ball to not bounce up and over the middle of the bat all the time. So, you know, brilliant. I love all that kind of variety. Um, Nadine, just... Just tell us a little bit about, you know, I, I want to just bring up a, 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 a topic. Um, I've had a letter sent to me by a white player, who I won't name, a club player, about one of his experiences. Um, just, you know, from your point of view, how much reporting do you have of, uh, you know, racist slurs on the field against your players or by your players indeed? Let me just say the year that Osterley won the Middlesex County at T20, two of the players were banned because of racist remarks by an English person swearing an Indian at the player about the person's mother uh, or the mother's. Um, and when it was reported to the league, it was like, well, yeah, the person's bad, but that's it. Those two players, after having won that year, they just kind of like said, we don't want to carry on playing at this club or in this league. Uh, and they, they went off to, uh, to play in a different league. And I think it's, it's not the, 
it's no longer the direct comments, but it's the ganging up of two or three clubs um, against um, an individual club. And that's why I was saying it's it, the opinions of the players now is that it's just bullying and why should we carry on in the league? Let's just go and play in a different league. I have to credit um, ECB. I, I believe that they've now opened up level three uh, coaching to anybody that can apply rather than be invited because there are a lot of coaches uh, that wanted to be um, level three coaches Asian and they were they were just told no your language is a problem um, an ex Indian T20 uh, player was actually told no uh, but now that rule has been changed and she's being allowed to be a level three coach. There's one more area I just want to quickly uh, examine, and and this is because of a, a, an email, one of the some number of emails actually I've had from people. Now I'm just going to read this one out. Um, this is about behaviour on the field, right? Uh, and this is from uh, a white player, uh, a person I know, a you know, respectable person. And he says uh, they were playing a match, his club were playing a match last September. And I'm just going to read, read the story quickly. Um, he says, for as long as anyone can remember, the league always moved start times forward from 1pm to 12.30 as the season uh, came to a close. We were away at a club of predominantly Pakistani players who we'd had trouble with before. <laughs> Uh, and met at the club, their club, the Pakistani team's club, uh, all being changed and ready for the game. No one turned up from the home side for quite a while. So in the end, we decided that we'd have a bat first as there were sort of law, law, rules in the club system that if the other team doesn't turn up, it's fair enough that you win the toss and do what you like if you're already there. Um, so they played. Um, he says they blamed not knowing the start time had been moved, even though it had been for every, se every season for years. So the atmosphere was pretty poor between the two sides, even before the game started. Um, they had to have player umpires because that's how they did it. Um, he says, we didn't get an umpire as we decided that we were going to bat. Our captain would be the umpire. All went well until the 13th over when one of our players played a shot and there was an appeal for a court behind from the keeper and the bowler. The batsman stood his ground, convinced that he hadn't hit the ball and that it hadn't carried to the, to the keeper. One of our players, umpire from the North Strikers End, said not out, uh, after which he was surrounded by uh, all the, uh, the home team shouting in Urdu. And eventually our player umpire was surrounded by eight or nine of their players protesting that he cheated and demanding that he give the batsman out. But he calmly stood his ground and explained that he didn't believe it was a close, a clean catch. This protest seemed to continue for quite a while. Uh, to the point where the striking batsman was now the focus of their attention and they were calling him a cheat. Again, this carried on until, in the end, the batsman was under serious attack, decided that he it wasn't cricket and he wouldn't be called a cheat, and he walked off the pitch in disgust. <laughs> a few moments later, our player umpire, who was our captain, asked around the rest of us watching from the boundary, do any of us want to carry on the game? To which they all said no, and the game was abandoned. Um, I mean, that's obviously one individual story, but um, what I've heard from sort of certain club leagues is that the disciplinary record of some clubs and uh, individual players, some of whom are of Asian origin, more than white origin, apparently, according to the facts, um, have, you know, have been suffering some disciplinary issues. So well, my question really is, I'm not going to take sides here at all, but my question is, do we need a different way of interpreting what is good behaviour? Because, uh, I mean, it could be that there's just extra passion from these players and they're not really being, you know, as we were saying before, there are cultural differences in how we respond to different things. And maybe there's just this extra passion we shouldn't take such umbrage at. Yeah, I mean, on that point, so when I played in, in the uh, Bradford League, Saturdays was the English League, Sunday was the Asian League. And it's complete contrast. So Saturday was very calm, temperament, umpires always right. 
Sunday, I mean, Sunday was kind of, you'd have literally family members on different teams and they'd be going hammer and tong um, at each other. You know, sw- swearing was common, questioning the umpire, you know, and I think, I don't know, maybe naturally Asian guys were, we'd maybe to go a bit too far, we get too pumped up about it. But I do think that um, the one thing that you can never, uh, that we need to be sure of is that the, um- the umpire's call is final. And even in the Bedfordshire League, we have a, a couple of Asian teams and a couple of, and the majority English teams. And there's no surprise to me, the disciplinary issues when you get the, the weekly board meetings about the league. There's always a couple of mainly Asian clubs. Now, I think it's a mix. They are more passionate, but equally, if they feel aggrieved that oh that certain team or that certain umpire didn't give them out, they maybe go too far and bring race into it. But I think it's not necessarily race. That's just a group of a group of players not knowing where to, to, to draw the line. And that's where a captain leads by example. So I've seen where an Asian captain, if he could have the authority to look, he said, not out, let's move on. But if the team sees the leader kind of, you know, challenging and, and uh, making a scene, they'll follow suit. So, but I do think, yes, dis- disciplinary wise, Asian players are more passionate, stroke rude. And the English teams are perhaps more accepting of, of a, of a, of a, a bad kind of umpire. Oh, can I, can I, like, I'm, my research isn't around um, sort of the the what's the, uh, the recreational game, nor nor sort of the history of cricket. But but doing what I've done, we've sort of looked at you know the the origins of cricket were obviously you know designed to uh, showcase the what, the values of Englishness, if you if you like, for one of a better term, and it was used across the colonies to almost show the values of what Englishness was. And it, like you say, you get that one style, the English way of respect and authority and how, and how we play it. But for Asian cultures, it was almost seen back then as a, a fight against oppression. Um, and, and, you could, and you almost see exactly how from these seeds it's grown into what it has, where one side, it's almost like a religion in you know, India and Pakistan and the subcontinent and the passion it has for it there because it, it's fighting against their oppressors. Whereas... Here it's still seen as a values, uh, you know, a trait for or a symbol for for Englishness and values, and you, and when those two things then clash, like you just gave an example of two extremes, that type of thing can happen, and it's not excusing one or the other, but maybe understanding why that happens can can help in judging what what's going on. That would be my my view of it. Yeah, I, 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 I suppose re- I suppose really that one of the cricket's problems <clears throat> is that it, it has a, an appeal so many different cultures and you know we, we don't understand each other's cultures that that much and that, that well well hopefully we're trying to get better but that does cause conflict and misunderstanding and miscommunication and ultimately the awkward situations i suppose briefly I, I made a few points about playing devil's advocate a bit i mean we say racism it's you know it's the posh ecb folk um you know not letting us as asians come through in inverted commas but how can we reverse that so uh, i had my few thoughts were number one <coughs> lack of asian coaching i think too many parents that i see they'll sit on the sidelines and they'll complain complain but i'm like you play club cricket why don't you go and do a level two clubs will pay for pay for you to go and do a level two and get involved so i think let's not as a community sit on our backsides let's go and get involved because you know the whole uh, you know, uh, be what you can see. If we see more Asian coaches, that will make, make make our players more comfortable as they come through through the system. Uh, so yeah, that's one thing I would challenge uh, the Asian uh, the Asian community on. And um, yeah, one thing I do notice in the summer is it might play a factor is uh, generally I think the Asian community is a lot more social events through the summer. God knows a lot of weddings, um, and there's almost a bit of pressure to to attend them all. I'll give you an example. My niece had a four day function from Thursday to Sunday. I had Friday training, Sunday county match, so I did a day trip, and to, to this day I still get hammered for it. So maybe that's a uh, maybe that's a, a thing that maybe the parents will say, "No, no, we 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 have to go to this this event, and you got to miss the cricket." Um, so for me, cricket with my son, we're all in, um, and yeah, perhaps that's that's a cultural aspect that that, that gets ignored. But and number one is, and the other thing is with, the, with our kids, we've got to tell them. In general, I mean Bedfordshire, the squad I have is half Asian Luton kids, half. Uh, private school English kids and English kids are more able to express to talk to, to discuss whereas Asian kids are a lot more I think timid is the word they don't want to express themselves and we've got to get them speaking more otherwise 
a coach might say, look, you know, he's got a bad attitude. He, he doesn't communicate, and and let's just leave him leave him um, on the side. So, yeah, I think I think equally we we can learn as an Asian community how to get better. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I think. Tom, would you agree with that? Yeah, apart from the last point where you said we've got to get the Asian lad talking more, but talking doesn't mean you're any good at cricket. Like I'd go the other way and we've got to educate the coaches about actually what is correlated with good cricket. So we know the only thing that correlates from a character point of view with high performances is resilience. And there are thousands of ways of showing resilience. They've got nothing to do with how you articulate yourself or how you speak in team meetings. And um, and ultimately, we don't look at any of those things other than the cricket stuff. So like, you know, how did he perform at 40 for five or bowling the last over or something? And there are much wider things that we can look into to assess resilience. So literally today, I've just um, come out of a, a meeting with Warwickshire to basically design uh, a transparent talent selection process for the CAG, uh, for the county age group pathway. Um, and basically to utilise that as you know, an area where we can direct parents for feedback or players can work, work towards, but also just to educate them as to what, what we're looking for um, and, and be as transparent as possible. That obviously has to be built around an evidence-based approach and it's not just a bunch of people's opinions. So that's our challenge for the next couple of years to really design and push that forward. We did a systematic review of all talent, idea and development literature in cricket. Um, and basically it's trying to take the things out of that that correlate with performance and try and find ways of measuring those things. So things around maturity status as opposed to basing things on age, um, things around, uh, like we said, resilience earlier as opposed to character as a general term and defining what we're actually looking for. And once you've defined something and you can measure it, you can evaluate its effectiveness. Right, let's hear from our world's best cricket club members, Omar. You've got your hand up. What's your take on all this? This is Omar Hack, one of our most active subscribers in the virtual club. Hi, everyone. It's a very interesting discussion. I don't have any experience of playing the game because I'm disabled, but I am an avid watcher of the game and I am um, from Pakistani heritage myself. So it's been a really interesting and eye-opening discussion. And I actually agree with a lot of the views um, that, that have been spoken about. I just want to make four very quick points the first thing is to, I think we spoke about culture here, and I think culture is really, really important. Interestingly, what's been done in the UK since 9-11 is that uh, mosques in uh, particularly high Muslim areas have actually opened their doors on certain in, during certain times of the year to bring in non-Muslim pe people to, to try and help the integration and, and get rid of some of the, the fear that surrounds Islam. So I think cricket clubs themselves need to think about areas that they can they can do that in. You know, whether it's during the summer after Ramadan, for example, where they hold a barbecue or something like that, to have more sort of cultural initiatives, have people speaking um, during club evenings. Do you know what I mean? To to really so that people can understand the issues that. Uh, people face culturally. So that's uh, the first point. The second point, I think, was around the language issue. And I think it is an issue just now, language, but I think it will be something that is less and less of an issue as generations kind of move further on. As, as we move sort of to the third on and fourth generation, this language issue will become less and less of, a, of an issue um, as people will be speaking English a lot more. So I think that is something that can be seen as a positive um, in the future for attracting pe uh, people or people of Asian heritage who perhaps want to be involved in the game at a playing or coaching level. Um, and also, thirdly, I really think it's a massive opportunity for all clubs to basically build on the success, success of Moin Ali and Adil Rashid in the England team, and now Saqib Mahmood, hopefully. Um, I never thought in all my years of watching cricket, I'm 37 now, I, I never imagined, first of all, I, I wouldn't have imagined England winning a World Cup, um, you know, 10 years ago or ever, even more than that. But I would never have imagined that there would be two players of Pakistani heritage in the England side. And I think it's a massive, massive opportunity for everybody from the Asian community and all 
uh, cricket clubs, you know, wherever you are, to kind of build on that opportunity, and especially the parents of kids who are interested in playing, to basically say, all right, there is another avenue for you to go down, have your education, but if you want to aspire to be like Moina Ali and Adil Rashid, you can do so. So I think it's really, really important that we kind of we kind of build on that. Well, that encouraging note seems like a good point to end this discussion. We realise we've only just scratched the surface in this complex and long-running issue, but at least perhaps we've heard some well-informed views and experiences and also touched on some possible solutions. Obviously, you can draw your own conclusions. Having talked to a lot of people on this issue myself, my own thoughts would be that if racism is not endemic in English cricket and certainly in the club game, then at least it's very prevalent. And that's just probably the blinkered view of a white middle-aged male. We are all probably guilty to some extent of unconscious bias and we definitely need to be more aware of other people's sensitivities and differing perceptions in a whole range of circumstances. So this is just the beginning of exploring the subject of racism and diversity in cricket, so we'd love to hear your views and stories. Please email your voice recordings or thoughts to theanalystpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you, and we'll publish your questions or observations or experiences in a forthcoming episode of this show. Anonymity will be guaranteed if requested. That email address again is theanalystpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again to Nadim Chowdhury from Osterley CC, Robbie Book, Chairman of the Club Cricket Conference, Umar Mughal, a coach in Bedfordshire, and Tom Brown, who runs the South Asian Cricket Academy, and also, of course, to our much-valued virtual club member, Omar Hack. Join our club at worldsbestcricketclub.com and you could be part of our next podcast. Thanks for listening and let's all work together to welcome people of every denomination, race and background into our unique cricket family. Podcast Network.